it's a, it's a real pleasure to be here actually in uh, Spokane. It's our first time uh, in Spokane in Washington. It's our first time in the west of the United, west of the United States. Um, so we're really happy to be here. It's really hot, which is different from where we are at the moment. We live in Africa, which is uh, very cold. Um, so cold, in fact, that the last few nights, maybe a week or so before we came here, when you're in bed, um, you could see your breath, um, which isn't fun. So um, there's no heating or you know, no double glazed windows or anything like that. Um, so really cold. South Africa, sorry. Yeah. Um, so a bit about me and Becca. I'm Jordan. Um, this is my wife, Becca. Um, as you can probably hear, we're not African. Um, we're originally from the UK um, and uh, moved to South Africa about two years ago, just under two years ago. Um, to serve Diklebeng Church, which is the church that Steve Oliver leads in, the, in South Africa, in a place called Clarence, tiny little town. Um, and yeah, we've, we've just been serving the church there and really seeking God for, um, for what he has um, for our future. Um, and um, yeah, it's, it's been great. Um, so a little bit about us as well. I think I'll, I'll give you some background, so you know a little bit more about us. We, uh, Becca and I got married in 2015. Um, so coming up to eight years ago, um, and then spent really sort of two, maybe even three years sort of messing around a little bit, um, you know, sleeping in on Sundays, cold side of the pillow, and not really um, engaging in church. We wanted to concentrate on our marriage, and we thought that not going to church was um, the solution for that, um, and it wasn't. Um, so we, we, got in, we got into a bit of, uh, not trouble, but sort of like lukewarm Christianity. Um, and then God really got us by the, the scruff of the neck um, and said, hey, I've got plans for you. Don't forget them. And so we got, we got back on track um, in sort of 2018 or so. Um, and then God really changed our lives. We were getting ready to um, buy a house. Um, we were saving. We were living with Becca's parents. Um, and God really sort of broke in at a, a conference that we were, we were at and said, actually, I've got a plan um, that, you know, I would be in full-time ministry. Um, and so that cut our salary by <laughs> quite a lot. Um, and so saving for a house was no longer on the cards, at least that extended the time that we would be saving and with Becca's parents. Um, and then one, one day, randomly, um, we got an email from Steve. I was just telling Richard. Um, and it said, hey, had you on my heart, can we Zoom? And we didn't know really, we didn't really know Steve. Well, everyone knows who Steve is, but didn't know him very well. Um, and so we went to an innocent Zoom meeting um, on a Wednesday afternoon. Um, and he said, hey, I've had you on my heart. Why don't you come and spend a year with me in South Africa? Um, and we were like, oh, okay, not what we were expecting, um, but okay. Uh, we'll pray about it, we'll seek God, and it became clear quite quickly that uh, God was in it, um, and he wanted us to go. So um, with COVID, that was, that's, this was the, towards the end of 2020, because COVID, it got pushed back and pushed back and pushed back and pushed back, and we ended up going at the end of September uh, 2021, so coming up to uh, two years now, and it's been great. It's changed our lives um, for the, you know, for the better, and uh, it's been brilliant. So... Um, how do I know Matt? Uh, why has Matt invited me here uh, this Sunday? Um, so we didn't know Matt until, what, Becca, the end of 2020, something like that. Um, and we are part of a group, uh, Regions Beyond uh, Next Generation Leaders. Um, and there's about 
16 of us or so, and a smaller core group that we're part of, sort of six of us. And Matt sits on both of those teams. Um, and so we got to know him on a screen. Um, and also Cameron Oliver, who's over in Missoula, uh, he was on that team as well. And last summer, um, after the, the youth camp uh, that you guys have uh, in Montana, um, he said, hey, we'd like someone from abroad to come and um, you know, minister to our young people next year. Is anyone up for that? And there was a bit of radio silence uh, on our WhatsApp group. No one really um, wa wanted the trip, and I'll, uh, I'll reveal a little bit why in a, uh, just now. But um, we said, we'll go. We'll come. That's fun. We'll do that. And my mum lives in Florida, so we sort of... Um, mangled the two things together. So we've had some time in Missoula, this weekend in Spokane, camp is next week, and then we've got next week at Revive uh, Missoula uh, on Sunday. That's going to be great. And then we're off to Florida. Um, but it took us over 40 hours to get here. Um, so probably why a lot of people didn't want to come. Um, so we flew from Johannesburg to London. That's 11 hours. Um, we flew uh, from London to Dallas, which is 10 hours. And then we flew three hours up from Dallas to uh, Missoula, plus a few breaks in between, a few running to flights, because one of our flights got delayed, and then the flight was then delayed anyway, so we were sweaty and waiting at the gate. Um, so it wasn't very fun. Um, but no, we're so happy to be here. It took a couple of days for us to get over jet lag, um, but we're, we're here now, and we're glad it's warm. We're not going to complain um, that it's really hot, because we know that when we go back in uh, the middle of August, um, it's A, winter, and B, the windy month. August is the windy month, so it's going to be dusty and cold uh, and windy. Um, so we're making the most of, uh, of being sweaty. Um, so uh, Matt asked me to uh, talk about uh, forgiving one another this Sunday. Um, and so the verse that first came to my mind was uh, Matthew chapter 18 um, and verses 21 to um, 35 which is, if you know your Bible really well, uh, that's the parable of the unforgiving servant. Uh, so if you've got a Bible, just um, you know, tap or um, flick there. Matthew 18, starting in uh, verse 21. And we're just going to read through that, um, and then we're going to unpack that a little bit and just talk about uh, forgiveness and forgiving uh, one another. So I'm reading from um, the ESV, so it may be different from um, what you've got. Um, but it says... Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sing against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold, with his wife and children and all that he had, and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. 
Then his master summoned him and said, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. So Peter, like many of us in these situations, comes into this asking the question all wrong. He asks how many times he should forgive someone until he doesn't have to forgive them anymore. That is already the wrong attitude. And if we're tallying up the wrongs that someone has against us until a magic number has been reached, our heart is in the wrong place. And so um, it says 77 times. In other um, books, it says the 7 times 70. So 7 times 70 is 490. So if we take Jesus literally, we can only forgive someone 490 times until they sin the 491st time, and then we don't have to forgive them anymore. And I don't know about you, but I've probably sinned 490 times this week, um, so therefore I'm not worthy of uh, anyone's forgiveness. So the assumption is that we should forgive someone a lot of times. However, rabbis at the time would have taught to forgive someone only three times until you turned your back on them and no longer forgave them. So Peter's suggestion of seven times is actually already quite generous uh, in Jewish culture. However, Jesus is deliberate in his repeated number seven. Seven is used as a number that represents completeness. So Jesus says that we must completely forgive others. It's not just seven times, it's seven times 70. So we must completely forgive others exactly like we have been forgiven. So there's no ifs, there's no buts, there's no maybes. Psalm 103 says, Our sin is removed as far as the east is from the west. Now we live on a globe, um, unless there's any flat earthers here, I hope not. Um, so we live on a globe, so if we go east, we will keep on going east forever, we'll never go west, we'll just keep on going east, because we'll be going round and round and round. And so west, the same applies, you go west, you keep on going west forever and ever and ever. So God has removed our sin from us endlessly, permanently, eternally, and his commandment is to forgive the same. And I think we often forget the sheer weight of the debt in this parable. So if you'll see in your Bibles that it'll have a little letter or uh, a number above um, the sort of unit of currency that is in this parable. And... The man who is forgiven his debt is in a debt of 10,000 talents. Now, one talent is 20 years' wages. So this man is in a debt of 200,000 years of wages. So that's a debt that's unpayable. You can't even begin um, to pay that back. So the man even asking for forgiveness from this debt, from his master, is absurd. There's just no way he could ever forgive um, pay this debt off. It's too large. And this probably would have even been a bit funny to the disciples that were hearing this parable. Like, there's no way this guy can pay this off. And the debt is too large. Like our debt to God. 
And it's a debt that no amount of good deeds, no amount of money can pay off in our lifetime, in an eternity of lifetimes. Yet God has forgiven us through his son. His son has paid that debt for us. A debt he did not owe. A debt that cost him his very life. Yet too often we become the man who won't forgive a small debt. Only a hundred days wages. So quite payable. Minuscule. Nothing compared to what the other man was forgiven. Yet we harbour a grudge over the smallest debt, over the smallest sins. We must be thankful that our God is not a God who, hold grud- who holds grudges against his children. Because a God with a grudge is one who would not forgive freely, but that would demand that his people have to earn their forgiveness through good deeds. And there are false gods like that in this world. The Muslim God demands that your good, we- your good deeds must outweigh your bad deeds in order to go to paradise. And that's a non-starter. We are born with the debt of sin, and only Jesus is worthy to clear that debt for us. The man who did not forgive his debtor was sent to prison to pay off his debt. If we do not receive forgiveness, and in the fruit of that forgiveness go on to forgive others, we also receive the same punishment. We stay imprisoned by our sin, never to be released. Those who die without the forgiveness of God receive the eternal punishment of hell. And that's why messages like this are so important. That's why we do this on a Sunday, is because we want to rescue, want to, we want God to rescue people from that eternal punishment. And we must love, we must forgive like we have been loved. We must forgive as we have been forgiven. We didn't deserve forgiveness either. Yet God freely forgives us. Therefore, we should freely forgive others. No one can offend you or sin against you to the point where it equals or surpasses the sin or debt that you owe to God. And you cannot out-sin the grace of God. There's nothing that you can do, there's nothing that we can do that once you are his child, that he will turn his back on you. Once you are his... You are his. It reminds me of the, the, the parable of the, the lost sheep. And that even though uh, one walks away, he, Jesus leaves the 99 to go for that one. And it's not as if, oh, that one, oh, well, that one might come back. It might not come back. You know, those sheep are his. And if one wanders off, he will come after you. I was preaching a couple of weeks ago from 1 Peter, um, so it's funny that you were mentioning that, Evan, um, this morning in our prayer meeting about um, how God guards our salvation. Now, if God guards your salvation, no one's ever defeating you know, God as a guardian. You know, your salvation is sure. Um, you can never, he will never turn your back on you. Even if you walk away from him, he will pursue you. And unforgiveness does nothing for us. At the end of the day, unforgiveness only hurts us. Matthew 6 says that we must forgive others or we won't be forgiven. And one of the fruits of salvation is forgiveness. And unforgiveness poisons us. It's often said that unforgiveness is like drinking poison and expecting someone else to die. 
Unforgiveness gets in the way of happiness. It gets in the way of joy and it produces bitterness. It affects how we communicate with others. It gets in the way of our relationship with people. It gets in the way of our relationship with God. The only person who gets hurt by your unforgiveness is yourself. And we must love as we have been loved. We must forgive as we have been forgiven. We didn't deserve forgiveness either. So therefore we should freely forgive others. We don't deserve to hold a grudge. And forgiveness can sometimes feel like taking the burden or taking the pain of something you feel like you shouldn't be. Jesus did the same for us. He took the burden, he took the pain, he took the death that was deserved by us in our place. He took the sin and he took the shame and he took the punishment in order to forgive us. And sometimes we take on the pain of an action or a sin against us to forgive someone else. Especially if the forgiveness feels unwarranted, it doesn't feel deserved. If Jesus held a grudge for what happened on the cross, we would not have freedom, we would have bondage. We would be in debt forever because of what Jesus has done for us. Instead, we are given freedom, life to the fullest, and we even become co-heirs to the inheritance that Christ won on the cross. And we must, therefore, be an imitator of Jesus, one who does not hold grudges for sin, but those who freely forgive sin through the grace that has already been given to us. And I feel like I say this every paragraph, and it's probably a, a deliberate thing, but we are called to love one another, love as we have been loved, to forgive one another, to forgive as we have been forgiven. And so even if we are to forgive strangers for their sins against us, Peter talks about his brother. So how much more should we forgive our brothers and our sisters in Christ? You hear often of believing parents forgiving their child's murderer or, or something like that, something, some heinous crime that's been forgiven by, by parents or by spouses. And I guess in the worldly sense, that's probably the most ultimate form of human forgiveness. However, we've been forgiven from so much more. We may not be murderers or anything like that, but we've sinned against a holy and a righteous and a perfect God. And our due punishment is not life in prison, it's not a fine or even the death penalty. It's an eternal punishment of separation from the love of God and the outworking of God's eternal wrath. So if we have been forgiven and we've been spared this punishment, how much more should we forgive those who we share an eternal bond with? Those who we will spend forever with, worshipping, feasting, fellowshipping, eternally in the presence of the God who saved us. Now, I love my brother. He's a few years younger than me. He's 27. I'm 30. But he's an idiot. <laughs> he is. Um, and he probably would even agree with me. I spoke to him this morning. Um, 
and over the years, he has borrowed money from me, time and time again, and most of the time hasn't paid it back. It's even been a bit of a, a thing in our marriage of, of me lending my brother money because I, I feel pity for him. But he's done things like try to take loans out in my name or like mobile phone plans or whatever else. But because he's my brother, I lean toward wanting to forgive him more than I would a stranger because we share a strong connection. We are blood. We have been through thick and thin together just like brothers and sisters in Christ. We are eternally bonded by the blood of Jesus. There's you know, that, that saying, blood is thicker than water, but I think the blood of Christ is <laughs> thicker still. We share in the riches of God together. We are to love each other and bear one another's burdens and we're to walk through life together and life's trials together. I'm not saying we, don't, we should forgive people we love more than strangers. I'm not saying that. But, you know, we, we tend to hold grudges against those more who we're closer to than those that we don't know. And we cannot do that if our relationship is not healthy or we hold grudges against one another. So my default position with a brother or a sister in Christ should be love, it should be forgiveness, and it should be a desire to be reconciled if we have an issue. Yes, we have difficult conversations sometimes that involve correction and involve admonishment, that loving correction, but that should not get in the way of forgiving one another. And that's really important. How do we deal, how should we deal with brothers and sisters who sin against us. Thankfully, as with a lot of things, most things, Jesus gives us a model for this in a previous passage um, from the one we've just read. So I'm going to shoot back to verse 15 uh, of chapter 18. So Rebecca, can you, it sounds really weird, but can you make sure you take a picture because Steve will shout at me if you don't take a picture. <laughs> um, you need my phone. Can I have it back because I'll forget what's on there? Um, so Matthew, eight, uh, Matthew uh, 18, starting verse 15. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. And Paul gives similar instructions. Go to a brother or sister. If that doesn't work, take someone with you. If that doesn't work, take the elders. If that doesn't work, take it to the church. If that doesn't work, cast that person from fellowship. And Paul says if they come back, they're saved. If they don't come back, they're not. Now, forgiveness is different to admonishment or to discipline. You can't forgive someone for a sin while still disciplining and providing consequences. If I steal a car, I am forgiven by God through his grace, but I still suffer consequences for my actions. I go to jail, or I get a fine, or I get probation, or 
if my brother it doesn't pay me back, if someone sins against me, like my brother not paying me back, for example, I forgive him, but the consequence would be, would be me not lending him money again or being more cautious about the promises that he gives me if he's lied to me. And we must not, I think this is important for, we're in South Africa at the moment, but um, this is important for the West, for, for, for the UK, for Europe, for, um, for America. We must not confuse love, hate, and disagreement. I can love you and disagree with you. It's often the most loving thing to do with, to, to, uh, with someone is to tell them that they're wrong. That doesn't mean I hate that person. I can disagree with you with a choice to have sex before marriage. I don't hate you, but I know that God has a better plan, and I disagree with you. So, another family member. I love my mum. I'm not going to call her an idiot. I, I love my mum. She's a Christian, but she is a stay-at-home and watch church on the couch Christian. She lives in, as I said earlier, she lives in Florida. So there's some time difference to, to, to where we live, but we often speak on a Sunday afternoon. So evening for me, afternoon for her. And she doesn't work on a Sunday. And we often take Sunday afternoons as rest. And I always ask her, did you go to church today? And most of the time the reply is, no, but I watch it on TV. And the reality is, unless you have a genuine excuse not to be at church, TV church isn't good enough. It, um, there's no fellowship, there's no worshipping together as saints, there's no relationship building. So I often tell my mum that it's not good enough and she should really go. I don't admonish her in that way because I hate her or I'm mad at her or I'm disrespecting her. I do it because I love her and because I know that God's best is meeting together in the corporate gathering of God's people. I disagree with her, but I still love her. And you can insert cultural topic here into this story, whether it be alcohol or sex or LGBTQ or whatever. Disagreement does not equal hate. Disagreement often equals love. And we can lovingly admonish our brother or our sister in a way that enhances our relationship and doesn't actually damage it. It can strengthen our bond as we navigate the difficulties of life. But how do we do this? <laughs> it's all well me saying it, but some things seem bigger to forgive and some, people, some things seem bigger to get over than others. We do it only through the strength and grace that is given to us by God. If we did this through our own strength, or tried to do it through our own strength, we would always fail. But the Holy Spirit works in us to give us that grace to forgive. It helps us heal from the hurt. Um, the Holy Spirit, sorry, helps us heal from the hurt that has been done against us. And it heals us in a way that we can in turn forgive as we have been forgiven, love as we have been loved, rather than turning to hatred and to to bitterness. And Jesus in the parable of the prodigal son gives us the perfect model of God's forgiveness. So first the son asks for his inheritance early. He then squanders it all away. 
And then when he has nothing left, he's eating with the pigs. And if we remember, pigs are the dirtiest of animals in Jewish culture. There is no lower than this, that this man can go than eating with pigs, than living, sleeping with the pigs. There's no lower. This would have been rock bottom. And the son returns, bowed head, shoulders down, returns home with nothing, seeking the forgiveness of his father for squandering everything that he has been uh, given. But instead of rebuking the son, instead of disowning the son and turning him away, which would have been culturally acceptable in that time for him to turn his back on his son, he does something very un-Jewish, something very unmanly for the Middle East. He, we're given this amazing image of the father running to the son, and he would have had to have sort of hiked up his robes and you know, ran to his son. And this would have been very undignified in that time. Jewish men did not run anywhere. And they would seldom run in most situations, maybe in a life or death situation, but any other time, no. But such is the love and the care for his son, he runs to him to embrace him and ensure he feels shame and guilt no longer. He gives the son a fresh robe. He gives the son a ring for his finger and he kills a fattened calf for the celebration of his return. This is God's model of forgiveness for us. Even though before we know him, we only care for ourselves, we only want the things of the world, like money, our inheritance from whoever that may be. We eat with the pigs, we eat with the world, we, we do the, eat of the world, we do these things. And even though, even though we don't know it, but when we respond in faith to the gospel, we realize the guilt and shame of our sin, we turn to the Father and he runs to us to embrace us, just as this Father does in this parable. And he reassures us that Jesus has not just taken away the sin itself, He's taken away the shame and the guilt that accompanies it. He dresses us in Jesus' robe of righteousness, the pure white robe of righteousness, as white as snow. And he gives us good gifts, and we are welcomed back into the family, or into the family. And as we are, heaven celebrates. Heaven does the metaphorical calf killing and celebrates on our behalf. And what we must be careful not to become is the other brother. The one that says, why does he get this? And someone sins against us and for a time may be unrepentant or not even be aware that they have hurt us, we must not become bitter. I'm sure the whole time that his brother was away, he was bitter. I bet he was horrible to be with in that house whilst his brother was away. So we must not be bitter, but forgive. So when that person does repent or apologizes for their actions, come back to us, um, maybe with their head hung in shame for what they have done, we can be quick to celebrate the return of a relationship and not hold on to bitterness. And even if, the hard thing is that even if that brother had not come back, the parable would have been, you still forgive your brother, even if he doesn't come back. 
We must hold on to Jesus' model of forgiveness, not holding on to grudges, but being quick to love and to forgive. And I'm sure the next morning, I think, you know, Jesus doesn't say this, but I think we can sometimes dream or assume or uh, think about what maybe happened next after uh, the parables that he tells. But I'm sure the next morning after the celebrations of the son returning home, there was an honest conversation between the father and the son. Probably a reflection of what the son had been through, but, you know, but also the hardship and hurt caused by the son to his family, to his father especially. And this is a model that should not just be for our personal relationships, but that of the church. And like I said earlier, you can, you can love someone and disagree with them. You can love someone and correct them. And I think this is what the father would have done in this situation, the father of the son who squandered his inheritance. There would have been a lesson after that. And that doesn't mean that the, the father is still holding a grudge. It means that the father is helping A, forgive, and to also make sure the son doesn't do it again. One of our values as a church family of Regents Beyond is thrilled and motivated by grace. We should be motiva- uh, motivated by the grace already given to us and in turn be thrilled to be gracious to others. Grace simply means to receive something that you don't deserve. We did not deserve God's forgiveness, but we have received it. So when we have the opportunity to forgive one another, that should be our first response. To, f- to love, forgive, and to extend grace. Even if we think someone does not deserve it. And as grace and forgiveness is in the very DNA of us as a region's beyond family, it's in the heart of Scripture and the Gospel. Through the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, we see the grace and we see the forgiveness of God. We read in Genesis that in His grace, God creates this perfect garden for His creation to live in. And even after Adam and Eve rebel and they sin against Him, He forgives them and He's gracious enough to provide clothes for their nakedness. The shame from that nakedness coming as a consequence of their sin. God's people are in slavery in Egypt, and through his grace he brings judgment on the Egyptians and provides a way out for his people as he saves them from slavery. And even when his people complain that they don't have what they had in Egypt, we don't have cucumbers and we don't have bread and we don't have meat and we don't have whatever else, he provides food that rains down from heaven to nourish them. Even in their disobedience, God provides for them through his grace. And throughout this time, God always provides hope. The prophets of old always provided hope. It wasn't just you're being bad and God's going to judge you. It's you're being bad, God is going to judge you, but God has actually provided a way out. God has provided hope. If you turn to God, he will forgive you of this sin. And he will fulfill his promises for you. That hope of a Messiah that would come and would take away the need for the sacrifices for sin. And we see the fulfillment of that in the person of Jesus. God, for hundreds of years, receiving sacrifices from people to atone for their sin, then Jesus, his own son, comes as a once-for-all sacrifice so that no one would ever need to make an animal sacrifice again. So that forgiveness is received 
when we put our faith in, faith in Jesus alone. It's not on if we do pass the law. It's not if we sacrifice the unblemished lamb or the bull or if we pour the pigeon. We don't have to adhere to ceremonial laws or make sacrifices to these precise specifications. We come as we are to the God of the universe and simply put our faith in his Son. The Son that hung on the cross for you and for me. And Jesus instigates all that we do. Everything. As the Bible says, we love because he first loved us, as I've said a few times. So therefore, we forgive because he first forgives us. You know, we extend grace because he extended grace for us. If we serve in the church or we serve um, a stranger, we don't serve of our own volition. We serve because Jesus first served us. Jesus is the instigator of everything that we do for him. And we must remember that we are a reflection of Jesus wherever we are. We are his representatives. We are his hands and we are his feet. What do people see when they look at us? What do people see when they look at our church? Do they see loving people that forgive each other, bear one another's burdens, people that are quick to love, even in correction, quick to love, when times are hard? Or do they see a people that hold grudges and are quick to anger, quick to shun their brothers and sisters? I've been going through um, 1 and 2 Corinthians, one of the young men that I disciple in South Africa, and um, I'm just reminded of what Paul says about the outside view uh, of the church um, from, from pagans. Because the Corinthians were having these silly arguments and silly uh, things going on that they were disagreeing about and taking each other to court and all of these things. And he said, what does that look, I'm paraphrasing, what does that look like to the outside world? Why would they want to be a part of what you're a part of or believe what you believe if you are acting just like they are? are we a pe- do, do, does the world look at River's Edge? Does the world look at us, does the world look at regions beyond and see a loving, caring, forgiving people, or do they see those that hold a grudge and don't forgive their brother and sister as they have been forgiven? So this morning we're going to take uh, communion, um, we're going to take uh, bread and wine, and we're going to remember what Jesus has done for us. Um, twofold, we're going to we're going to we're going to have that reverence and that awe of what Jesus has done for us, but we're also, this is a meal of celebration. We have been forgiven and we can now extend that forgiveness. And the Bible says that you should not take of the bread and of the cup if you have an issue with a brother or a sister. You must fix that first. Don't come and take communion if you've got an issue. So if you've got an issue with someone in this room, today seems to be the perfect day to go and fix that and then take communion together. Take communion as a brother and brother or sister and sister or brother and sister. And as we do that, let's celebrate this meal together as brothers and sisters in Christ. Amen.